How y'all doing? Good. Is it still morning? Yeah, it's still morning. I didn't know because um, John already gave us a sermon. <laughs> a sermon or two. One of them even had five points. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it later. Um, we, uh, we are going to continue in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and we're going to pray and ask God, God to help us. We're going to pray briefly. I know we've prayed a lot. Um, but one thing, just as we continue to go through the book, one of the things you'll notice in the Gospels is there is repetition. So we're all going to talk about things that we've talked about before. And I know it's tempting to sometimes think we keep talking about who Jesus is and what it means to trust him. When are we going to talk about something practical? And what I want to encourage you in today is to remember that there is nothing more practical more practical, more useful than who you think Jesus is in the way that you respond to him. So as we go to God's word now, we are going to look at who Jesus is, uh, but I want you to look at it knowing that it has massive impact on your life. Let's pray. God, we come before you again, and we thank you again for being so good to us, Lord. And God, as we go to your word, we pray you would make clear to us again and again who your son is, Father, that you'd speak to us, that we'd be encouraged, that you'd give me grace to preach with boldness and truthfulness and clarity, that this would be a fruitful time for us as a church. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, a couple times today already we've greeted each other. And as John talked about, you know, not greeting too many people, it's funny to me because I'm bad at remembering stuff like that, people's names. I have, a t I have a good memory for some things, song lyrics. I have an awful memory for other things like responsibilities and sometimes people's names. But I wonder if, like me, you've ever uh, confused somebody for, for somebody else. You know, met somebody and said their name and it's the wrong name and then it's too late to take it back. And it's bad. I mean, this is why usually when I don't know, I just keep it real vague. Just, hey, Trip, what's up, bro? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and that's just a good tip for those times when you're not sure. But one of the uh, craziest examples of this that I can remember, just kind of mistaking someone's identity, I remember when I was in high school, me and my best friend, um, we, we went to this party just to hang out with people. And there was this girl, Nicole, there. Now, the day before, we spent the entire day with Nicole and her pregnant friend. We hung out with them at the mall. We were chilling. And so we were like, hey, bye. See you tomorrow at this party. We go to the party. Me and my friend, we go up to Nicole. We say, hey, Nicole, how you doing? My friend goes up to, to her friend and rubs her belly, says, how's the baby doing? Unfortunately, it was a different friend. It didn't happen to be pregnant. So that, that's the worst mistake of all mistakes, <laughs> right? There's, there is no coming back from that. You can't, <laughs> you can't segue to a less awkward place. It's just, you just got to go home at that point. It's over. <laughs> now, now, maybe we can think of situations like that where we mistake somebody's identity and it's embarrassing or it's insulting. But today, as we look in the Gospel of Mark and we think about the identity of Jesus, if we mistake the identity of Jesus, it's more than embarrassing, it's more than insulting, it's tragic. Because if we mistake somebody else's identity, then that maybe is going to cause an awkward moment for a second. But if we mistake Jesus' identity, it has something to do with our eternity. 
unlike the identities of other people, who we think Jesus is and how we relate to him in light of that has something to do with how we'll spend our entire eternity. So the stakes are really, really high. It's in a whole different category. You know, our culture has so many ideas about Jesus and who Jesus is. You could turn on the TV and you hear people talk about Jesus, and so many people think different things. So, it, so it's a good use of our time to think deeply about who we think he is and whether or not we're right. And here's the main thing I want you to know today, that Jesus is not just another man. He's your Messiah. Jesus is not just another man. He's your Messiah. And I say your Messiah on purpose. Right? I mean your Messiah, your Savior, your Deliverer, because outside of Jesus, I have no hope. He's my only hope. And outside of Jesus, none of us have any hope. He is our only hope. So we cannot see him as just another man. We have to see him as our Messiah, the one chance that we have for eternal life. And I want you to give your whole life to him. But of course, if we're going to give our life to Jesus, we have to trust him. Right? Trust changes the way we relate to people. You know, for example, real quick, if you ever had somebody call your phone like selling something and you don't know who they are, you don't trust them. I had somebody call one time and they were like, hey, we need your social security and your that. I'm like, I don't know you. I'm not going to give you that information, right? We don't have, I don't know who you are. There's no trust there. So we're going to talk about who Jesus is and ask some important questions. And so these four questions that we're going to ask today in this text is, who is he? What did he do? What does he want from me? And can I trust him? Who is he? What did he do? What does he want from me? And can I really trust him? And I think as we look, we'll see that Jesus, again, isn't just another guy trying to make a point. Jesus is the point. He's what everything is about. So let's start with that first question, and who is he? Who is he? We got to start there because it's the foundation for these other questions, and it's the first thing that's addressed in the passage we're looking at today. And it's a question that people still wonder even now. I mean, you may think, okay, it's been 2,000 years. Shouldn't we already have figured out who Jesus is by this point? But again, there's so many different viewpoints. At the least, you know that Jesus isn't your average person, right? You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that. Almost everybody in our nation, so many people in our world are familiar with Jesus, right? He's the most talked about person in the history of the world. You can't talk about philosophy. You can't talk about ethics. You can't talk about religion without dealing with Jesus, and as we know from as we've been going through Mark, he's not just famous. Now. It's not just now that people know who he is. He was famous then. I mean, if you feed 4,000 people and 5,000 people with some leftovers, people might start to be impressed by you. People might start to want to know who you are. So similar to today, everybody knew who Jesus was, but not everybody knew who Jesus was, which is why Jesus keeps doing things to try to make people understand it. So you remember last week, uh, he healed the blind man very gradually and so that the man uh, began to see him clearly. And now Jesus is going to ask his disciples some questions to help them to see him more clearly. I'm going to start reading Mark 8 at verse 27. The verses should be up on the screens if you don't have your Bible. This is what God's word says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, 
and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So as they walk, after these miracles John, I mean Jesus has just done, he asked them very explicitly, who do people say that I am? He's basically asking, what are people saying about me? Right? He's not asking it the way we ask people what people are saying. He's not insecure. Jesus doesn't need a self-esteem boost. This isn't like when you check your Twitter mentions or your Instagram comments trying to make sure people still like you. Jesus isn't asking for his sake. He's asking for the sake of the disciples. And you notice Jesus, being that he's a great teacher and he's a great miracle worker, he could have said, hey, guys, what are people saying about my teaching? Or he could have said, hey, what are people saying about my miracles? You heard anybody talking about that time I fed 5,000 people the other day? He doesn't ask those questions. And he doesn't ask those questions because, in a sense, that question is irrelevant because the teaching only exists to point to who he is. And the miracles exist to point to who he is. And the healings exist to point to who he is. So this is the important question. Who do people say that I am? What are people saying about me is a question that he's asking them. You know, there are other, you know, great leaders in the history of the world, writers and philosophers and even leaders of religions that people like and they, and they follow. They like the stuff that they say. One example, obviously, is Martin Luther King Jr., right, one of the most honored American heroes. Everybody loves what he says. But every now and then, some new biography will be written or some new stuff will come out and people will say, oh, wait, you know, did he have like some issues maybe? Were there some issues in his life? And here's the thing. There's controversy about those issues and people don't like that. But, but here's the thing. Even if Martin Luther King Jr. was the biggest hypocrite of all time, which I don't think he was, but even if he was, it would not change what he talked to people about, right? He taught people to love one another. He, he fought for civil rights. Those things have happened. And that, that's a great thing. But here's the difference between someone like him and Jesus. If Jesus isn't who we think he is, then everything he said falls apart because his teaching centers around him. It's about him, the person. It's not just about principles. Again, this is why Jesus is asking this question. Jesus has not just called us to buy into a way of life or just to believe in love. He's called us to believe in him. He's called us to love him. He's called us to worship him. He's called us to deny ourselves to follow him. So, yes, it matters who he is. And so, you know, here's what they answer. Is they, you know, they've been around. They know what people are saying. They're saying, well, people say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, one of the prophets, which is an interesting answer. It seems people saw what Jesus did, and they were clear at least that Jesus was special, right? They saw him do amazing things. And their reference point for people of God doing amazing things was, of course, the great prophets. So I think about Elijah, who was a great Old Testament prophet, so great that he didn't even die regular. The Lord took him up in a chariot of fire. That would be nice. They're like, maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe John the Baptist didn't die. Maybe Elijah came back. Let me tell you, if, you know, those are interesting answers. If somebody, if I said to someone, hey, who do you think I am? They was like, man, I think you might be Elijah or John the Baptist. They'd be wrong, but I'd feel honored. That's an upgrade for me. Thank you. But when we're talking about Jesus, it's not an upgrade. Right. When we begin to talk about Jesus, if they think he's just one of the prophets, 
then that's, that's dangerous because even though Jesus was a prophet, in fact, he spoke for God, and even though he was a great man of God like them, Jesus is so much more than a prophet. He created those prophets, right? When those prophets spoke the words of God, they were speaking the words of Jesus. When those prophets came, they said, thus says the Lord. When Jesus came, he said, I say to you, because he is the Lord. Jesus is more than just a prophet. So for them to say that isn't untrue. But to borrow a word from John from a couple weeks ago, it's undertrue. Yes, he's a prophet, but he's so much more than just a prophet. And misunderstanding Jesus was not unique to their time. I mean, if you look around our world, so many people misunderstand Jesus. They think of him as just a great teacher. You know, I heard this song a few years ago on an album, and they mentioned all these great people in the world, in the hook. And, and you know, they say, hey, Martin Luther King and, and his wife, Coretta Scott King. They mentioned Malcolm X and his wife, Betty Shepaz. They even mentioned Mary and Joseph. And then at the end of that list of just these great people is sweet baby Jesus. Just threw Jesus in on the end of the list like he's just another person. And it makes me think, surely you don't understand who Jesus is if you just throw him in at the end of a list. Jesus is more than just a good teacher. Jesus is more than just another great person. So, you know, he then asked Peter, okay, asked the disciples, okay, who do you say that I am, though? That's what it says, verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So here Peter's clear that Jesus is more than just the prophet, that he's the Christ. So just so we're clear, Christ is not like Jesus' last name, okay? It's not like Jesus Tyrone Christ. That's not what this is. <laughs> I need to stick to my manuscript. Christ is a title. Right? Christ is a title that they, that they would have been uh, familiar with. Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Peter's pointing out that Jesus is, you know, appointed to be the savior of his people. Right, that he's been bestowed with that title to deliver his people, anyone who trusts in him. So this is such an important part of the gospel of Mark, because as you know, the disciples just keep not getting it all the way through. I mean, they left 4,000 people being fed, and then they got on the boat and was like, oh, we forgot food, Jesus. What are we going to do? And Jesus is like, same guy, right? So this is an important part. The only people who've said that Jesus is the Christ so far in the Gospel of Mark is God himself and the narrator of the book and demons, right? Demons knew who he was, but the disciples didn't get it. This is an important part where the disciples start to get it at least a little bit. I wonder if you see Jesus as the Christ today. And I wonder what that title even means to you. It's good for us to stop every now and then and ask ourselves who we really think Jesus is, even those of us who are Christians, even those of us who come to church every week. Because you know it's very possible for us to distort our picture of Jesus and even to have the right words and to put the wrong meaning in them. Right? Christ, to some people, means this nice guy who doesn't really care the way that I live my life. That's what Christ means. Lord and Savior to some people means the dude I pray to on Easter and Christmas. Son of God to some people means the guy I come to and just sing, sing about up here. Sometimes we know the right words, but we put the wrong meaning into the words. 
So, so I want to ask you, you know, is the Jesus that you're worshiping actually the Christ? Is it the real Jesus that we find in Scripture, or is it a guy that we made up? It's so easy for us to be like, I would like it if Jesus were like this, and assume he's like that and try to worship that Jesus. But we have to look in Scripture. Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is not just another teacher. Jesus is the subject. You understand that? He's not just trying to teach about interesting things. Jesus is what they've been teaching about. He's here. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. And Peter's pointing that out. So who is he? He's the Christ. More than a prophet, he's the Christ. Number two, what did he do? What did Jesus do? When we're thinking about people trying to get comfortable with people, it's nice to know their name, nice to even know a title, but we often want to know, okay, what did they do? Actions speak louder than words, right? Isn't that what makes people credible to us often, what they've done? And since Jesus isn't just a teacher, well, of course, we'd expect what he does to be more than just teach. So right after he says he's the Christ, he's going to help them understand what that means a little bit more. Look at verse 31. This is what, what it says. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Let me stop right there. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for a moment. Imagine you had left everything, your job, everything, to follow this teacher, to follow Jesus. And you'd seen him do incredible miracles, and he'd blown your mind time and time again. And you'd really grown to love him and to long to be with him. Right? He was your friend, the most amazing person that you'd ever seen. And you had just heard this revelation that he's the Christ that you've been waiting for, the deliverer who's going to deliver God's people from bondage and oppression. And then right after you hear that, you hear him say, I have to die. All the religious leaders are going to reject me. I mean, you have to understand that would be shocking for them to hear, right? For him to say, yes, hey, I'm the Christ you've been waiting for. Oh, and by the way, I'm about to get murdered. Right? That would destroy the hope that seems like it was just built up. And even as he calls himself the son of man, that's another title that you wouldn't put with death. I mean, son of man in the Old Testament is this person with divine authority and power. Right? It points to his humanity, but also this divine authority and power. And you don't associate that with death. Death doesn't seem powerful. Right? Death doesn't seem victorious. Death doesn't seem like a win. Death seems like the ultimate defeat. So when Jesus says he's going to die, this is the first time they've heard that. You can understand that's hard. One interesting thing is Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things. Why would he say he must suffer many things? Why must Jesus suffer many things as the Christ? Why couldn't he be the kind of Christ or Messiah they were waiting for, the kind that was a merely political figure? Right, who would just make life easier for everyone. Here's the reason. Because the kind of deliverance that human beings need is not just a political deliverance. Right? Politicians can't fix everything for us. Some of us thought they could eight years ago. We're like, dang, it's still hard. Yeah, it will be. Right? 
The kind of savior that we need is not just a savior from difficult things in our lives because our main problem is our sin problem. We need a savior who can rescue us from sin. And because the wages of sin is death, if Jesus is going to be the kind of savior that we need, Jesus must step in and take that death for us. This is how God planned that it would work in love. So he says, the son of man must suffer many things. The cross wasn't an accident. Jesus dying on the cross wasn't something that he wasn't aware of. Jesus knew it was coming. When bad things happen to us, we get surprised. It's like, man, I didn't know I was going to lose my job. I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't know somebody. Jesus knew, and he continued to walk the path in that very direction out of love and godliness, the kind of trust and contentment and the plan of God that we see in the life of Jesus should impact us, especially since he did that for us. It's incredible. The, The disciples are having a hard time wrestling with this, and Jesus seems to be resolute. So how did the disciples respond? Because this is hard. Verse 32. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, this just took an interesting turn. Look, is it? Is Peter not an amazing example of what we look like so many times? You are the Christ. What? No. Right? We, we, we'll say Jesus is who he said he is, that he's our Lord, that he's our Savior. And the next moment, we challenge his authority. I mean, this is very strange that Peter would rebuke Jesus. This is very weird. Jesus created Peter, and he's like, let me pull you aside. Like he's a child pulling him to the side like, we need to have a talk, Jesus. I mean, it's strange, it's ironic, and it shows that even though Peter just, you know, he's the Christ, he doesn't fully understand what that means. Peter didn't understand that the Christ didn't just mean the kinds of deliverance they were waiting for. He didn't understand that Jesus had to pay for sins. And so he responds in the wrong way. But, you know, Jesus, it says, turning, seeing his disciples, and he, he rebukes Peter. It says, get behind me, Satan. He didn't want what Peter said to get in their minds, too. I mean, this is why Jesus just told them, don't tell anybody just above, because they don't get it yet. If they went and said, oh, he's the Christ, he's about to do this, this, and that, it wouldn't have been actually what he was about to do which is a lesson to us and that when we tell people about Jesus, even if we have the right words, we want to make sure we put the right content into those words. There are too many people claiming to speak on behalf of God and they're telling lies. Right? So Jesus tells them, hey, don't tell anybody yet. And then he shows us why right after because Peter still doesn't get it yet. And Jesus is being really gracious with him and patient with him. Though he uses harsh words, he says, get behind me, Satan. Right? He wants to make sure it's not unclear how horrible what he's saying is, that this is satanic. I don't think he's calling Peter Satan, so let me be clear. I don't think he's calling Peter Satan, but I think he's pointing out the satanic source that that came from. This is a satanic thing to say. Satan, that, that title just means adversary. Satan is the adversary of God, trying to fight against everything that God is doing. And here is Jesus carrying out the plan of God to save sinners. Here's Peter rebuking him for it. If that's not satanic, I don't know what is. 
what Jesus calls it out. says, get behind me, Satan. And he doesn't just say he's wrong. He says, hey, you're setting your mind on the things of man and not God. He's saying, Peter, you're thinking in a worldly way. You're thinking about this life only. You're thinking in a sinful manner. And you might say, why would it be worldly for Peter not to want Jesus to die? Well, it's a worldly mindset that assumes that it could never be the right path if it includes suffering. For Peter to assume, well, no, no, if Jesus has to suffer, that can't be right. Let me rebuke this man that I just said was the Christ. That is a worldly perspective, and it's a worldly mindset that so many of us have, which is why we struggle to follow Jesus, because we think it cannot be right if it's hard. That is setting our mind on the things of man and not the things of God. And don't we respond? I mean, we can look at Peter and say, you are foolish to rebuke Jesus. But don't we respond like Peter sometimes when we hear God's word? With proud pushback instead of humble obedience? To the teaching of Jesus? Well, yeah, we do that. We did that every time we sinned this week, whether we rebuked him with our mouths or not. Every time we sin, sin at its essence is rebuking God and telling him that his plan isn't good enough. I have a better one, God. That's what sin is. So this same kind of setting our mind on the things of man instead of the things of God that we see with Peter, we do it all the time, every single time that we sin. And so we should let Jesus' rebuke to Peter be a rebuke to us as well. Do not challenge the authority of the Christ. He reigns. You know, sometimes we read God's word, and it's hard, right? Nobody wants to pretend like every command you read in Scripture, you're like, that's easy, doing that already, right? Often we come to Scripture and we don't like the stuff that we hear God say, similar to Peter. And that's because we're set in our mind on the things of man and not the things of God. And the beautiful thing is that God is so gracious to us that he's given us his spirit to renew our minds. He's making us more and more like Jesus so that we continue to go to God's word and we try to go with a humble heart. And even when we don't like stuff, we say, God, help me. Help me not to respond with proud pushback. Help me to respond with humble obedience. And man, one of the most beautiful things to see in our lives is the ways that God slowly makes us more like Jesus. Beautiful to see. Beautiful to see. Feels slow. Often feels like it's not happening at all. But God is doing it. So what did Jesus do then? That second question, he died and he rose for us. He died and he rose for us. And it continues to point us to who he is, that Jesus isn't just a tour guide trying to show us the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. I mean, I'm going to keep trying to drive this home. Jesus is not another chapter in the story. Jesus is the point of the story, right? He's not chapter 15 after chapter 14. He's what chapters 1 through 14 have been talking about, and now he's here. Jesus is the big deal. Number three, what does he want from me? What does he want from me? This is a, a question that we are familiar with, a question we ask sometimes, right? I, you know, Okay, Jesus sounds nice, died for sins, sounds like good stuff, but what's the catch? You ever ask that question, what's the catch? What does he want from me? Um, my wife broke her phone, I was about to say recently, but she actually broke it a long time ago, and I pressured her to just hold out for a while until she was ready for an upgrade. Um, and it finally just gave out, and I had to repent. But we went to the AT&T store to get her a new phone. 
I don't like going to the AT&T store, really. I like the Apple store, AT&T store. It feels like they're trying to hustle you. And so the dude was talking to us. He was like, look, you don't even have to buy the phones anymore. You just lease them real easy. You pay da-da-da-da-da a month, da-da-da. And I'm like, this sounds nice, but something isn't right about this. So I'm like trying to do Google searches on the side real quick. <laughs> very, very quickly. Uh, now I keep asking him questions. And a few times I was like, okay, sounds good. Then I was like, no, 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 but wait. Tell me that again. All right? And he was, math wasn't adding up. It was all kind of strange stuff. But I was forced to ask, hey, what's the catch? Right? I feel like there's going to be something required of me. You're going to trick me. It's going to seem free, but it's not really going to be free. Well, let me tell you, it's different with Jesus. Jesus is not calling us to follow him and dying and raising from the grave in order to trick us into doing something. And he's not going to require us to earn it from him. There's no trick with Jesus. However, that doesn't mean that nothing is required of us. New life in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins. It's free. Jesus purchased it. It's free. But that doesn't mean it's not costly. It will cost us something. So what does he want from us? He doesn't want us to earn a relationship with him. He does want us to live in light of the relationship he gives if we trust in him. Let me, let me read. 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 9 verse 1, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Man, there's so much in this text. Right, so we're just going to be able to scratch the surface. I feel like um, a quarterback trying to do clock management right now. I'm trying not to go too long. But, but Jesus calls the crowd, and he wants to make clear that, hey, here's what I must do. Suffer and raise from the grave, right? We're going to talk about that resurrection a little bit more at the end. But he also wants to make clear, if you want to follow me, this path is not going to be an easy one. Right? Peter has just done the opposite of the way to respond to Jesus, denying self to trust Jesus. Peter denied Jesus in order to trust himself. And he wants to make clear, no, 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 let me make clear you understand what this looks like. If you want to follow me, you want to come after me, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross, which isn't what you would expect someone to say if they want a crowd to follow them. You'd expect them to be like, hey, if you want to come after me, free hugs and donuts every day. Come on, right? You'd expect like nice things, happy things. Jesus says, no, you have to deny yourself. Have you ever thought about what it means to deny yourself? Those of us who've been in church a long time, have been Christians a long time, it sounds very familiar. Denying yourself, though, means to say no to yourself sometimes, to refuse yourself sometimes, to reject some things that you want to do, which doesn't sound nice and fluffy. I mean, you, you wonder, hey, is Jesus just being mean spirit here? Why is he telling me to deny myself? And here's the thing, if we were perfect, asking us to deny ourselves would be ridiculous. 
if we always made the right decisions, telling us to say no to ourselves sometimes would be strange. But if we're flawed and if we're lost and if we often make terrible mistakes, then Jesus telling us to deny ourselves is loving. Right? If we're going to drive ourselves off the cliff, then Jesus saying, don't go the way you want to go, follow me, that's loving. Right? It's a loving thing for him to do. He's being good to us. And he's saying, hey, if you want to follow me, you've got to stop following yourself. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying you can't be yourself, you can't have a personality, all of y'all have to be exactly the same way. He's not saying that. But he is saying even your personality and the way that you are all has to be submitted to Jesus. Hold on to your sense of humor. That's good. Don't hold on to your lust and pride, though. Say no to that. Right? Say yes to your sense of style. That's cool. Say no to the sins that keep you from God. Right? Turn away from those things and, and follow me. Say, if you want to follow me, you've got to stop following yourself. It's like asking for directions. I'm terrible with directions. I don't know how to get nowhere. But I can't ask my wife for directions and still try to steer myself at the same time. And I've learned over the years that doesn't work. And self-denial is hard. Again, we don't like this. We don't like to say no to ourselves. But real quickly, here's why it's a good thing. One more time. If my wife said to me, who I love very much, is very godly, but if she said, you got to say no to everything you want to do and say yes to everything I say, and I'd be like, we need counseling. <laughs> I don't think that's how it's supposed to go. If John said, hey, Tripp, glad to have you be a pastor, but the other pastors we've talked, if you want to continue to be a pastor, you got to do everything I say. Say no to everything you want to do, yes to everything I want to say. And I'd be like, plant another church somewhere else. <laughs> and, and here's why. Because John and my wife and everybody in this room, we're sinners too. Why am I about to hand the wheel over to another sinner to just mess it up in a different way? But here's the thing, when Jesus tells us to deny ourselves, to follow him, this is not another sinful man who's going to lead us astray. This is the perfect, all-wise, all-loving son of God, the same one who just told us he died and rose for us. I can trust him. I can, not only can I trust his wisdom and his goodness, but I can also trust that he loves me because he proved it by giving his life. It's a good thing for Jesus to tell us to deny ourselves. He also tells us to take up our cross, which is a strange phrase. It doesn't sound as weird to us, those of us who've heard it a lot of times, but it is a strange phrase. This is before Jesus dies, remember. So we're looking back at the cross. The disciples, they don't, they haven't, they don't know Jesus is dying on the cross. They don't know this. So you can imagine how strange this sounds. What would have come to their minds was a Roman instrument of torture, the most brutal form of execution, a disgraceful way to die, excruciating pain, a slow, painful death. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. As you can imagine, again, this was hard to hear. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to find a way to die in order to prove your love for me. That's not what he's saying. But Jesus is saying, we have to be prepared to endure whatever comes. And he is saying, the road of following Jesus will be marked with some suffering, maybe even persecution, which is something that we often don't think about much because we live in the United States. But I want you to know so many of our brothers and sisters in Jesus across the globe have to live this out every day, right? 
They know following Jesus is costly because they can live, lose their life for it in a moment. And the same thing is true here. I mean, I hope you remember that all the disciples, except John, and they tried to kill him, all of them were killed for following Jesus. Every last one of them. So this rings true to them. This also kills the myth that some preachers say, hey, if you'll just follow Jesus, everything will be great. No problems. Jesus said the opposite. He said, no, no, there will be problems. There will be problems. When people are like, man, I can't follow God anymore. I thought there would be no problems. Then I just want to say, somebody deceived you. Jesus said there would be. This is not to say we go looking for problems. But they'll come. They'll come. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Tell us more what he means up there by that self-denial on the cross. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Then he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus now starts to use lots of language about losing and saving, about gaining and forfeiting. And what Jesus is continuing to point out is, if you want to follow me, there's much to gain, but there are some things that you're going to have to lose, which, again, we don't like to hear. My three-year-old son, if he, you know, if I have to take one of his monster trucks away, it's as if, it's as if the world ended, right? How dare you take my monster truck? I'm going to the Supreme Court to fight this battle. <laughs> this is a travesty. We're CNN, right? This is what's going on in his mind. But we do the same. We don't like to lose stuff. So again, this is a stumbling block to following Jesus. You know, some of us don't really understand some of the reasons we don't want to follow Jesus. I've talked to some people sometimes who are very clear about it. You know, hey, why don't you want to trust Jesus? It's like, you know what, I like doing this and I like doing that. I want to build my life around sex. I want to build my life around money. And Jesus is saying that is a terrible trade-off. Why would you try to gain the world and forfeit your soul? That's a bad trade-off. That's like me having a lifetime's worth of savings in the bank, and I trade it in for a million Disney dollars. It'll be nice while I'm at Disney World. <laughs> but after I leave Disney World, it's not going to help me. And in the same way, we may think, oh, I like this life. Let me try to make as much money as I can. I don't want to follow Jesus if I have to build my life around him instead of money. And Jesus is saying, what good is it going to do you to have everything you want for 30 years and then to perish? Would you not rather understand that you'll have to lose some things only to have eternal joy, eternal life in me? Doesn't that seem like a better trade-off? Some of us, we think that's an okay trade-off because we don't understand the value of our souls talking about your soul, not just your physical body, not just the house you have, not just the stuff. Your soul is far more valuable than anything you have or you can see. God has entrusted it to you, and he's saying, look, don't buy into stuff that won't last. Here's the thing for the Christian. Jesus is never asking us to trade in joys to take on sorrows. Jesus is calling us to trade in lesser joys for more greater eternal joys. He's calling us to trade in weak, shallow joys for deep, strong joys. And he's saying, yeah, there's probably going to be some sorrow in between. But look, how, how can you compare 70 years 
90 plus years if you're my grandfather. But he's even saying, look, how can you compare that to an eternity? It's a bad trade-off. And Jesus says, you know, whoever's ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of him later. He's basically saying this. If you don't want to be associated with me now, if you're afraid to lose some things in order to follow me now, don't try to call my name when you're standing before God. And this is not Jesus being vengeful. A life of being unwilling to associate yourself with Jesus shows that you have not truly trusted in Jesus. If the worst thing you can imagine is losing some friends, then what you've shown is you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you've put faith in having friends. Anything you build your entire life on is an idol. Only Christ can hold that weight. And we're in a day and age where it is not popular to be a Christian. Of course, there is temptation to be ashamed. It sounds straight absurd and weird to people, what we believe Scripture says. But because we know the truth about Jesus, that he's the Christ, that he laid down his life for us, then we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is there to be ashamed of? Instead of shame, we should feel gratitude. And that gratitude comes from faith in this Jesus. Last question, and we'll try to go through this one quickly, even though it's the hardest part of the text. Um, Last question, can I trust him? Right? Who is he? He's the Christ. What did he do? He died and rose for us. What does he want from me? To deny ourselves and to follow him. Lastly, can I trust him? Can we trust Jesus? Right, okay, so he's the Christ. Okay, he died and raised. But is he credible? Is the stuff he's saying real? And if we're honest, this is something we still wrestle with sometimes as believers. Can we really trust Jesus? Because hard things happen and we wonder, I don't know if this is the agreement we had, Lord. I thought you, like, heard me and answered prayers. Can can I trust Jesus? And here's how God has been so good to these disciples. He's shown them so many things to show that Jesus is who he said he was over and over and over. I mean, if I'm rolling with somebody and a demon-possessed man is there and the demons inside of him start talking to him and then cower in fear, right? If I see him heal blind men and tell lame men to get up and again feed thousands with some leftovers, I mean, those are amazing signs, and God is so good to keep showing them signs. So here's what happens. 9 verse 2. I'm going to read through verse 13. This is what it says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until The Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribe say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. He's talking about John the Baptist here. 
Right? And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So Jesus goes beyond his teaching about who he is, and now they go up this mountain. This is a crazy story, okay? First of all, the word transfigured, we don't even know. I mean, that's not a word that we even associate with anything. It basically just means he was transformed. His physical appearance changed. He was all of a sudden glowing, and his clothes were so white that not even the best tide bleach could bleach it that white. That's what it says. It doesn't mention tide, but it says that. <laughs> and it was incredible. Then Elijah and Moses showed up. So there's so much here. I'm going to try to just talk real quick why this shows that we can trust Jesus. One, the disciples understand that God so often has met with his people on high mountains. God, again, is giving them a little sign. Hey, he is who he said he was, right? Moses met with God on the mountain. That's where the Ten Commandments came from. I can mention lots of other stuff. Sign one, going up on a high mountain. Sign two, Jesus all of a sudden transforms, right? So if it's like, ah, I can't really tell because he looks like the rest of us, God gives him a second to glance on the glory of Jesus. Number three, Elijah and Moses show up. They, as you wonder, they're not still around at this point. So we're talking about Moses. Moses, the incredible you know, prophet who led God's people out of the promised land, gave the Ten Commandments, wrote those five, first five books, the Pentateuch. I mean, this is Moses, highly revered in him. And then Elijah, this great Old Testament prophet who raised people from the dead and did, a, did something similar to Jesus and fed people with, with a little bit and that God was with them and that went up to heaven in a chariot of fire, they show up and they look up and Jesus and Elijah and Moses are having a little small group. They're talking. I don't know what they were talking about. I would love to know what they were talking about. And so Peter doesn't know what to do. He's like, I'm going to make some tents. So there's significance that Moses and Elijah show up. Malachi uh, 4 talks about Elijah coming back. That's what they're talking about with, with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is that prophet making the way for Jesus. Elijah and Moses show up. So they know it's Elijah and Moses, and they know that in some way God is meeting with them. So in his mind, he's like, oh, God used to meet with us in tents and tabernacles. I'm going to make three tents. I'm not sure why he wanted to make three. He was just going on the fly. It says he didn't know what to do. He was terrified. But here again, God is confirming Jesus is somebody special, right? I don't know about you, Elijah and Moses usually don't show up when I climb stuff. So he said, look, if y'all are unsure if he's who he said he was, let me show you two of the greatest prophets ever just sitting and talking with him appearing. Incredible. Then a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son. Listen to him. Right? A voice from heaven, God speaks, saying, look, this is my son. This is not an ordinary man. This is not another prophet. This is not another guy. This is God in the flesh. This is the son of God. This is the savior. This is the Messiah. Listen to him. Gave the disciples so much affirmation that Jesus is who he said he was. And as they continue to go through, they're still talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. So here's the thing. We may say, but I don't know if I should trust Jesus. And I'll close here. 
I don't know if I should trust Jesus, so can I trust him? I wasn't on that mountain. I didn't see Elijah and Moses. I don't really care about this transfiguration. It sounds strange. But then they're talking about his death and his resurrection. If there's a man who says he's the Messiah and he dies, then people panic and they think he must not be who he said he was. And so many people did think that. But three days later, he got up from the grave. So in the same way, I'm going to say, what more proof do they need? Elijah and Moses showed up. In the same way, I'm going to say to us, what more proof do you need? Jesus got up from the grave. So not only did he love us so much that he paid for our sins, not only did he love us so much that he endured the suffering we deserve, not only did he love us so much that he's so patient with us, that he defeated death for us and defeated the devil for us and defeated sin for us, not only did he bear our sins, but he got up from the grave. And I want to tell you, you know, we sing a lot of songs about the cross. This is your first time here, you may be like, man, they sing about the cross a lot. Is it because they like suffering? You know, we sing about the cross because, as Jesus is pointing out here, that's central to what he came to do, to die for sinners. But the cross is not beautiful if there's no resurrection, and Jesus did get up from the grave. Remember when Jesus was crucified, the disciples ran away. They abandoned him like none of this had happened. But Jesus got up from the grave. And let me tell you, if you're followers of a man that you think is the Messiah and then he dies, you panic. Let me tell you what you don't do. If he's really dead, you don't then go around telling everybody he's still the Christ. He's still the Messiah because people will be like, I saw that dude die. Right. Let me tell you what doesn't happen. Uh, people beginning to worship and love this Jesus. Let me tell you what doesn't happen. These same disciples and apostles continuing to preach Jesus to the point that all of them were murdered. You don't do that if he died and it was all a lie. You only do that if he got up from the grave and you saw him with your own eyes. 1 Corinthians 15 thought they got it from the grave, and people saw him with their own eyes. It's in the Bible. If they wrote that, people would be like, no, they didn't. Nobody. It says 500 people. You can't fake that. Jesus really got up. And I'm going to say to you today, Jesus is your Messiah. He's how you can be saved. And if you don't know Jesus, I want to plead with you to trust him. He's the son of God. He died and raised for our sins. He's called us to deny ourselves, to turn away from our sins, and to trust him, to follow him. And it's clear from this transfiguration and the resurrection that Jesus is who he said he was, and we can trust him. If you trust Jesus right now, you can be forgiven of your sins, know him, have eternal life. And everything you trade in, all those lesser joys, they'll seem like nothing compared to the eternal riches of grace God will pour out on us forever and ever in Christ. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you so much for your word. God, if it's not for your word, we are wasting our time here. We don't know what you're like. We don't know what you desire from us. But God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for Jesus. Our Father, and we pray, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, that you would show them what he's like. You'd open their eyes. And Father, we pray that as we continue to sing to you, you'd continue to be worshipped. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.